Welcome to The Daily Bite with your host, Pastor Steve Andrews. Today brings us to the conclusion of the Apostle Paul's second letter to the church in Corinth and the last communication that we have between the two groups. So, chapter 13. This is the third time I am coming to you. Every charge must be established by the evidence of two or three witnesses. I warned those who sinned before and all the others, and I warn them now while absent, as I did when present on my second visit, that if I come again, I will not spare them. Since you seek proof that Christ is speaking in me, he is not weak in dealing with you, but is powerful among you. For he was crucified in weakness, but lives by the power of God. For we also are weak in him, but in dealing with you, we will live with him by the power of God. Examine yourselves to see whether you are in the faith. Test yourselves. Or do you not realize this about yourselves, that Jesus Christ is in you? Unless, indeed, you fail to meet the test. I hope you will find out that we have not failed the test. But we pray to God that you may not do wrong. Not that we may appear to have met the test, but that you may do what is right, though we may seem to have failed. For we cannot do anything against the truth, but only for the truth. For we are glad when we are weak and you are strong. Your restoration is what we pray for. For this reason I write these things while I am away from you, that when I come I may not have to be severe in my use of the authority that the Lord has given me for building up and not for tearing down. Finally, brothers, rejoice. Aim for restoration, comfort one another, agree with one another, live in peace, and the God of love and peace will be with you. Greet one another with a holy kiss. All the saints greet you. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all. This is the word of the Lord. So we've come to the conclusion of the letter, and we see, again, as Paul mentioned in the text yesterday, he's planning to appear to them for this third time. He said that back in chapter 12, verse 14. So the first time was the planting of their church on his second missionary journey. The second time we don't know as much about seems to be referenced back in chapter 2, verse 1, as he appeared in a a manner in which he needed to rebuke them. It was a visit that caused them pain, and he doesn't want to pain them anymore. Uh, So that's some of what we read about today. He brings up those previous warnings. Before we get to that, though, every charge must be established by the evidence of two or three witnesses. This is a reference back to Deuteronomy chapter 19, verse 15. In the way that God structured the Israelite nation to work, one witness isn't enough. You cannot condemn a man based on the word of one. This has some positive effect, right? It does prevent one sinner from making up a story to ruin the reputation of another. That happens. We see that happen in the world we live in today. And so it has to be established by the evidence of two or three witnesses. Which, which direction is Paul aiming with this? Their charge against him? Perhaps? 
the super apostles claiming that Paul is nothing and he should not be listened to, the Corinthian church being willing to listen to such words against Paul? Or is this flipped around? Is it going the other way? Is it Paul's warnings against, that he's about to mention, against those who have sinned in the church of Corinth? And the the two or three witnesses then includes Titus, the great gospel preacher brother that we don't know by name, as well as the other brother that was sent to them as Paul spoke a couple chapters ago. That seems more likely here because he immediately launches into that with verse 2. I warned those who sinned before and all others, and I warn them now while absent. I don't think we want to make the argument that Paul's warning in person and his warning by letter serve as two or three witnesses. Saying something twice is not the same as having a second witness. If I come again, I will not spare them. Paul has been accused by the super apostles of being weak in person. Only having harsh words. Well, those those are harsh words. Those are strong words. So let's see if he can back them up as he goes to visit. He doesn't want to have to. He's hoping that as he appears, as he arrives, that the people there will have repented of their sins and that he may go about simply preaching the gospel and enjoying their fellowship together as the church of God. Verse 3 is a reference to what the super apostles have said, since you seek the proof that Christ is speaking in me, that Paul really does have authority and it's not just empty words. Jesus does not deal with us in weakness, but he is powerful among us because he is our Lord. Right? Jesus is our Lord. He is our Savior. So he is, verse 4, he was crucified in weakness. Jesus, in his state of humiliation, showed weakness. And he did it for our sakes. He allowed the world to torment him and torture him to the point of death on a cross. And he did so for us that we might be spared, that we might be forgiven, that we might live. But now, now in his state of exaltation, as he lives, as he has been raised from the dead, as he has conquered death and all things, and everything is subject under his feet, Jesus is not weak. Jesus reigns above heaven and earth. And so Paul as an under-shepherd of Jesus, as he comes back to the city of Corinth, visiting the Corinthian church, he does not visit them in weakness, but he brings with him the full authority of Jesus Christ, which includes, as Jesus would give to his disciples in Matthew chapter 18 and John chapter 20, the really the task, the responsibility of the forgiveness of sins and the retaining of sins, uh, the office of the keys, as we call it in the church. That whatever you forgive is forgiven, whatever you do not forgive is not forgiven. So Paul has that authority, 
And again, as he said it a few times in his letter, he wants to deal with them as brothers. He does not want to have to rebuke them. And he's writing this letter in advance of his arrival in hopes of bringing about repentance, if need be, anywhere among them so that he can skip that step when he gets there. But as a faithful pastor and preacher, the call to repentance is a call that we deliver. And so if he gets there and needs to deliver that message, he will. Verse 5, examine yourselves to see whether you are in the faith. I mentioned this before, that this may not be, even though we call it 2 Corinthians, it may not be the second letter Paul has shared with them as a church. There may be other communications that have gone back and forth between the two, and we just have the two letters. But regardless, as we look at 1 and 2 Corinthians, we see in both of those letters Paul telling the Corinthians to examine themselves. If your children are older, as you deal with family devotions here, if you're talking to kids that are older, they might remember where that was in 1 Corinthians. By older, I mean if they've been confirmed, if they've gone through or gone through preparation for the Lord's Supper, because it's 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 28, where Paul tells them that they must examine themselves prior to receiving the Lord's Supper. There is a warning attached to receiving Christ's body and blood that if you do so unworthily, it can lead to your harm, even worldly death. And so we must examine ourselves before we partake of the sacrament. Here, examine yourselves to see whether you are in the faith. How would we do that? might be interesting, especially with the younger kids, to hear their answers to that. How would we examine ourselves to see whether we're in the faith? What has Christ done for you? It's a question you could ask your kids. Who is Jesus to you? What hope do you have? if, If something happened today and we died, what do you think would happen? What comes next? Those are the kinds of questions that you can use together as a family, right? I think this is this is probably more helpful to ask together within the family in a way than it is to even just ask of yourself. Because when we ask of ourselves, we do run the risk of our pride getting in the way and turning the verbs on ourselves, making ourselves the subjects rather than God. Because we look at it and say, well, as I examine myself, how do I know I'm in the faith? Well, do I believe in Jesus Christ as my Lord and Savior? Yes, I believe in Jesus Christ as my Lord and Savior. I'm the subject of the verb, both in the question and in the answer. I get to go to paradise. Jesus will bring me to paradise. When death strikes me, Christ takes me home. So you can get there individually. But 
again, within a family, uh, loving brothers and sisters in the Lord, I think you can do it together too. Test yourselves. Jesus Christ is in you. As Christians, as, as the children of God, Christ dwells in us. We are the temple of God, as he says back in 1 Corinthians chapter 6. So he's written to them before on that topic. Unless you fail to meet the test, in which case Christ isn't in you, you're not his child, you're not part of that family. Paul, in verse 6, says that he hopes that they will find that Paul has not failed the test, and Titus and, and the others. Paul and Titus and Timothy and all the others have not failed the test. Their hope there is that the others, that the Corinthians, will come to realize that. That as Paul visits again, they'll notice, yeah, Paul's a Christian. He's our brother in Christ. And that this letter will strike them as such as they read it. And if they do read it that way, and imagine reading that as a Corinthian Christian and believing that Paul is your brother and being humbled by this letter, you'd get to a statement like that and it would almost be hurtful to read. How could we possibly not see Paul as our brother? It's hard to say exactly how the Corinthian church received this text, but they would have received it by the hand of a messenger. It would have been read in their midst, and we just don't know how they responded that day. We pray, so here's Paul's prayer for the church in Corinth, that they would do what is right, not what is wrong. And not for their own benefit. Paul's not doing this so that they'll, you know, it'll prove his, his Christian faith, where the super apostles claim he has failed, that he isn't part of that. No, he's doing this for their, he's praying for their own sake. Verse 9, we are glad when we are weak. That's been the last two chapters. And you are strong. That's an interesting point. Because typically, Paul says we rejoice in our weakness. So why is he talking about the Corinthians' strength being a thing of gladness? Well, if we are strong, what makes us strong? That would be the Lord's work. That would be God's gift his forgiveness, his love. It would be him building us up, as we're going to see Paul say in verse 10, right? The Lord has given me authority for building up and not for tearing down. So it is God that makes us strong. Your restoration is what we pray for. Paul and Timothy and Titus and the others, they're praying for the restoration of the Corinthians, that their faith would be sure, forgiven, Alive, children of God in paradise. As you think about that, who are some of the people that your family prays for? We all know people that are in need of restoration. Whether it's the strong faithed Christian, right? We, I, I don't know, you and I. Assuming our faith is, is considered strong, you and I are still daily in need of forgiveness, daily in need of restoration, which comes through Christ, and for that we rejoice. So you can pray as a family together that Christ would continue to strengthen you in your faith, that he would continue to forgive you each day. You also know people 
that are Christians whose faith is not strong, whose faith is weak, and you can pray for their restoration, that the Lord would build them up as he forgives them and loves them just as he does for you. And uh, you can also pray for your, your enemies, for the enemies of Christ and his cross, for, for those who don't believe, that don't have faith, who have failed that test or would fail that test. We can pray for them that they would be restored that the free gifts of salvation offered from Christ would come upon them as they have come upon us. All right, so Paul, again, wanting to, uh, he gives us his reason for writing the letter. Verse 10, I write these things so that when I come, I may not have to be severe. He doesn't want to come and arrive in person and have to just rip into them with the law and, and lay them bare as he rebukes them. He wants to use the authority God has given to him to build them up, to encourage them, to strengthen them as they gather together. But he does have the authority from the Lord to rebuke them if that is what needs to be done. Note, verse 11, Finally, brothers, rejoice. He continues to treat them as family. He's done that throughout his writing, right? And you go back to the first letter, a terribly fractured church. They're fighting over all kinds of things. I mean, the poorer among them don't even get to have the Lord's Supper because the rich are hogging it all. It's a mess. Brothers, family, rejoice. Take treasure, take joy in Jesus and his salvation. And then you got kind of a short list of things to do. Aim for restoration, so pray for it yourselves. You know, re repent, allow the Lord's forgiveness to be that gift that it is. Comfort one another. So we are taught by Scripture to comfort and encourage one another, to share with one another in life always. Agree with one another is the next one. So the idea of unity in the church is important. Live in peace. That's also unity. But it's the, the idea of living in, in a way that we forgive one another and we don't hold grudges, we don't fight against each other because we have that gift of God's forgiveness from him for us and we can give that to one another. In these ways, God is with them. Verse 12 always confounds people, right? Greet one another with a holy kiss. As 21st century Americans coming off of a pandemic, that line is crazy to us, to say the least. We don't actually know, at least as far as I'm aware, we don't know what this kiss looked like. I mean, you've got some other cultures. Is it Italian culture, for example, where the, the kisses on the cheek are, are common? You know, maybe it's something like that. I have really no idea. Um, there's so many different things that that could refer to, um, but it's it's the physical greeting. Just like as, as we come together, we might hug or, you know, a strong male friendship. I like those old medieval handshakes where you don't just shake hands, but like your, your hand goes onto the forearm. You grasp each other's forearms. Those are good firm shakes right there. Anyway, it's a greeting to one another that you are family together. 
And so they are with all the saints. The whole church sends their greetings to Corinth. Then we get a blessing. Verse 14, the grace of the Lord Jesus, the love of God, fellowship of the Holy Spirit. So a Trinitarian blessing at the end of the letter. Grace of Jesus refers to his gifts of forgiveness and life and salvation. The love of God, a wonderful thing. And the fellowship of the Holy Spirit that we can be together as the church. That is a wonderful thing to speak, a word of blessing over the Lord's people.